There are so many people doing it tough in retail, but it's not the whole story. So I think everyone in the industry needs to play a part in trying to shifting that negative narrative because there are such beautiful, amazing, wonderful stories of retailers across the online spectrum, across the old traditional incumbent retail spectrum, and then new brands popping up that are just telling fabulous, wonderful stories about what retail can evolve to be next. It's not dying, it's just evolving to the next thing. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hello, everyone. We have an exciting episode for you today featuring the co-founder of Think Uncommon and the co-author of the new book, Retail Innovation Reframed. Andrew Smith, he's a former retail executive, consultant, innovation expert, and I really enjoyed speaking with him because not only is he extremely passionate about retail and the work that he does, but he has such a refreshing people-first perspective of it. A lot of times when we talk about innovation, it's very focused on the new tech, what's hot, what will give you that leading edge in the marketplace. And sometimes that's very much needed and warranted, but really what's consistent throughout our conversation is the role of people and new ways we need to look at problems, find solutions, and communicate ideas internally. And I know innovation has been a really hot topic, not just recently, but over the past few years now in the industry. And he really has a very refreshing take on how retail teams can really accelerate innovation. So with that, hope you enjoy this conversation and get some practical takeaways. Andrew, welcome to the show. So happy to have you on today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we have a lot to dig into, so let's get right into it. You're the co-founder of Think Uncommon, which helps retailers embed innovation culture, practices, processes, measurement into their business. Very big topic, very top of mind topic for a lot of retailers right now, uh, to put it lightly. And we'll get into some of the work you've done, some of the learnings and all that. But first, I love a good origin story. What drove you to start Think Uncommon? What brought you to where you are today? I'm not sure I'm going to live up to Avengers standards for origin (laughs) stories, but I'll do my best. Well, for a start, I'm a retailer and so is Gareth, who's my co-founder. And we are basically self-obsessed retail nerds. Retail is like this, such an incredibly unique and stunning place. You know, it creates careers. It teaches people how to be better humans. When you spend some time on the shop floor of a retailer, you learn and see pretty much every type of humanity that exists that just teaches you things like curiosity and stuff. It pays for college and it impacts pretty much everyone on the planet every day. So we fell in love with it like so many people do. But there's this kind of annoying negative narrative that exists around the industry and that the industry can't adapt and that it's dying and all this other rubbish, if I may. (laughs) And we got together and thought, as retailers who who love this industry, know the potential and know what's happening and know what the future could possibly look like if we adapt and reframe the way we think about it, we basically wanted to say, screw the negative narrative. So how can we fix it? Like, What are the best bits of retail that we can surface? Because if that happens new stories shift, investment thrives, you know, attrition drops, more people come into retail, all of these great, wonderful things. If we can get rid of this kind of persistent negative narrative. So we went on a mission to find out why the narrative is there, 
why retail brands, particularly those who have like battle scars, those who've been around for you know, sometimes hundreds of years, can't just adapt and grow and change based on disruption. You know, retail is one of the most disrupted industries around. It's impacted by disruption of not only itself, but everything around it, like technology and supply chain and people's behaviors and all of this kind of stuff. So we found that the friction, this was a quite literally, by the way, a year-long mission that we went on, which ended up with us deciding we should put this all into a book. But we found that this friction is what's holding us back and holding back change. And I'll talk more about innovation as a kind of a definition later, but innovation essentially is change. And this friction that's built up over time has held back that ability to change. And it's persistent and it's really dangerous. So essentially what we found is that it's common for people to know what to do but it's uncommon for them to have the how to do it or to at least do it at a decent rate of change. So our mission therefore became how do we make people think about the uncommon side of that, which is the how, hence the name of the business. So our mission basically then became we just have to find how to get rid of that friction. So we researched amazing retailers who can seamlessly adapt at ridiculous pace, the best innovation processes that exist around the world, Dozens of people in the industry were willing to sit down and hear us rant and rant back at us about what works and what doesn't. And that enabled us to kind of create a process and some products and services and things that are specifically made for the nuances of what innovation should look like in retail. So that's us, basically, the how of change and innovation in retail. I love that. And I love that it's really rooted in two people that really love retail. And I mean, I think I've had a lot of conversations with executives, with consultants, with authors, and the one thing that tends to come up pretty frequently is, you know, despite all of the challenges, despite all the disruption, the industry is made up of people who are truly passionate about what they do. And I think that really shines through in the work and the end product, whatever that may be. So let's dig a little bit deeper into your process, the, the reframe process, because Again, I said earlier, innovation is such a hot topic now. It's a big market opportunity, I guess you could say, a big business opportunity for consultancies, for strategists who want to help drive the industry forward. So what makes your process stand apart? How do you kind of work through that reframing process with businesses and help them see that uncommon side of things? Yeah, look, I agree with you that there is plenty out there. Like there are loads of people who are willing to jump at the opportunity to help a retailer change and think about strategy differently, et cetera. And there are a lot of great ones, to be fair, but often they come at it from a really academic point of view and usually to solve one problem as well, like a sky high business thing, like give me growth, three year growth strategy or reduce costs and something that's kind of big and chunky. And they come at it from a very consultative view. Often there's not retail practitioners in the room. They're kind of bringing in more of a, I know how to transform an operation to reduce cost or to grow. And, and it's just, it's very different. Where, as I mentioned, we're shopkeepers. We've both run large retail businesses. We surround ourselves with people who are in the industry for the right reasons, with the right values, who understand the nuances and individuality of what retail is. Usually that's obviously current or ex-practitioners themselves. So that makes a really big difference in the way we engage with people. And I think that makes people immediately more comfortable that they're in the room that, you know, not only are these, do these people know retail, but they've done it. They're shopkeepers themselves. But I think secondly, the, the reason we're doing it is really important to us. Like we're doing it because we love this industry. At the end of the conversation, you'll know my 
depth of retail nerdiness is is incredible. I I am obsessed with this industry. So it's not about making millions of dollars. It's about creating legacy, creating change. How do we create something that isn't years long engagements and all that kind of, you know, crap, (laughs) but it's more about how do you walk away from a brand and say, this is a permanent level of change. This is something, a transitioning of skills from us to them that means they can change at pace and more broadly entirely on their own, which I think is important. But the reframe process itself, which, you know, we started off with the idea that we need to reframe the industry. It worked out beautifully. It wasn't too forced. I must admit it's a little bit forced, but not too forced that we can, we managed to use reframe as an acronym for the process. But we thought basically innovation processes that work for industries the world over don't necessarily always work in retail because retail is so different. The way the operation works, the margins, the way capital's been allocated, the way we've done things, the the battle scars, as I refer to them, that we've built up over time of, you know, the way we do things around here, quote unquote, are different to other industries. So we wanted to make sure that it was really specific for retail. It came from a practitioner's point of view, not an academic one. So that, I think, stands us apart. But more importantly, it's we just really really care about this industry and we want it to do well. We want incumbents to do well. We want new players to do well. It just does such an amazing thing for society that, you know, why would we not want to help try and make it better? And better equals being able to adapt to change and adapt to disruption by increasing rate of change. So, so yeah, so the reframe process was born. I love that. And as a content person, I love when a good acronym naturally works out. (laughs) (laughs) I must admit, Gareth's much more uh, level-headed and academic than me in terms of the fact that like he's a unit, you know, he teaches retail at uni in both uh, Australia and China. So when I said I've managed to fit it into the acronym, he rolled his eyes and said, of course you have. (laughs) Well, it's a balance. (laughs) It seems like you guys make a good team then because I feel like there's there's always a more academic person, maybe analytical, and then there tends to be a more creative person. And it's like the yin and the yang, I guess you could say. So let's dig into some of the experiences or conversations that you've been having, because going back to your point earlier, you're both retailers, you have that history with the industry, you love the industry, you you let your nerd flag fly, it's pretty clear. So you come into these conversations, I'm sure, with a bit more of an understanding and, uh, oh, I've been there, a bit more empathy, a bit more of like a connection. So, I mean, I'd love to get your take on the types of conversations you've been having with individual executives, full-on teams. I'm sure in these conversations, there's an airing of the grievances and the airing of the frustrations, especially right now. So, I mean, if you're to kind of boil it down into some key challenges or or friction points, I mean, what would you say they are right now? Are, Are they pretty consistent with what we've been talking about over the past few years, but they've been intensified, completely new things? I mean, break it down for us. I mean, frustrations, definitely. Retailers are really good at whinging. I know I certainly am anyway about about everything that's happening on and the challenges that we face. And I mean, 2020 for sure. For some, it's been great to be clear. For a lot of people though, it's been incredibly challenging. I think there's definitely been a little bit of a pivot about what people are thinking about, particularly senior execs, you know, the C-suite CEO level. It definitely feels like the whole industry is running in one direction at the moment, which is strengthening digital. So improving digital assets and improving the connective tissue that exists between like digital and physical worlds. 2020 has kind of forced us to do that. You hear all of the, anyone who went to NRF, the big show, chapter one, you know, heard pretty much in every single conversation, 10 years 
in 10 months, you know, I don't think that's probably standard across the board, but it's certainly every individual retailer has had their own journey and their own evolution over 2020. But everyone definitely seems to be running in one direction now. I think it's created some new frustrations, which are interesting. And I don't think they're talked about enough. They've definitely been there, though, for field teams, people like regional managers, store managers, franchisees or licensees. They've been there for some time, which is that the measurements are all wrong. So in this world, the measure of success and productivity has to be different. There's there's no way that we can continue to manage stores to the same metrics that we've been using for the last decade or longer. It's essentially just creating this friction between teams that are in the field and in the stores and running digital teams and running product teams. And it's, it's just, it's slowing down the pace of change. And it's also anti-customer, which is obviously the worst thing you can do in retail. So that's something that needs to be addressed ASAP. There are some really savvy retailers who are looking at that now, but not a lot. And I think that conversation is going to have to be accelerated. Like how do we start measuring stores in a way that isn't year on year comp sales growth? Because that's not, and even in, down to the individual level in a shop store, that stuff's not possible anymore because you're a part of a massive customer journey that exists across physical and digital realms that your value to uh, growth and to customer success is not necessarily what it used to be, yet we still pay and measure performance based on that old world. So that's got to change. So there are a few people that are talking about that and have pivoted a little bit away from trusting their, te- they've basically trusted their teams to start strengthening those digital assets. And they're now focused on, well, how do I operationalize this in the world that's coming? Oh, that's great. It kind of brings me to, to my next question around where the points of urgency are for a lot of retailers, especially through the lens of innovation, right? Because, I mean, we've been hearing and covering the shift to digital, largely inspired of the lockdowns and, and just people really trying to be a bit more cognizant of when and how they go to physical stores, or in some cases, they literally can't because stores are closed or they were largely closed a few months back in the U.S. So, There were a lot of conversations around, okay, what do we need to do? How do we need to innovate the digital experience to better reflect or recreate some of the magic of the in-store experience? And I guess there's some sort of connection there to your point around like store measurement. So, I mean, what are you seeing getting the most urgency right now, I guess, beyond or part of that measurement conversation? Where do you think there are clearer opportunities for progression or or completely new ideas coming to the forefront from an experience standpoint? So I think it's such a difficult question to answer on the basis that so many different brands have a different experience. Like have, they have a different customer base that's evolving in really different ways. They have different physical versus digital asset base and capability and maturity. It's just difficult to kind of say that. And every brand needs to kind of take a look at their position and really bring it down to what is the most important problem for them to chase at or opportunity for that matter to chase. And we have kind of a golden rule, for lack of a better term, that just you need to be solving a problem that for your business or creating value for your business, creating value for your customer and align it with your purpose. And if you've nailed those three things, then you should absolutely run at the idea. And I think a lot of people right now are in what I'll call survival mode from the shift, you know, this dramatic kind of dragging shift that we've had to have in 2020 that we now need to start thinking about, okay, we have to strengthen that. We've spent a whole bunch of time accelerating innovation. We now need to, you know, most of that's probably held together by sticky tape and string or at least the equivalent of 
we have to obviously refine those and industrialize those and make them solid and less manual than they probably are. But also, what are the things that we can do that are specific to our brand that's aligned to who, you know, who and how we exist and why we exist and the why, you know, the reason consumers come to us? And how do we then think about continuously being able to change and adapt for those customers? And I think probably the best way to describe it is retailers in particular have always kind of done things in a very similar way. We've continuously modernized and adapted, but we're all about efficiency and growth and chasing what's in the till at the end of the day. Those short-term metrics sometimes blind us from thinking about our broader game. So we work in the business and not on the business enough. And we liken that to trying to win Wimbledon with a wooden racket. You know, retailers, some pretty great retailers out there that are still competing against brand new younger players with the best equipment with this old wooden racket because they've got this tremendous experience, this capability, this internal knowledge, this brand mostly that's allowed them to be successful. But sooner or later, the wooden racket's not going to work anymore and you need to kind of update yourself. And the, the problem is too many retailers get enthralled that the racket is actually a thing, like a single thing, like update my tech stack, move to digital, change my stores to be these huge fancy experiences, whatever it is. It's, there's no one thing. The racket itself is actually, like the analogy is actually, it's the way you build those things, all the things. So like, again, the how of innovation. So I think the urgency has to be around improving how you innovate. And again, innovation, rate and breadth of change. Can you change at an increasingly faster rate and more broadly across your business. That's the thing that should be getting your attention as a retail leader right now. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up a really good point, Andrew, I think around the fact that so many companies had to build something very quickly, roll something out really quickly just to keep their businesses moving. So you have to kind of pause, revisit and find ways to improve upon, streamline, or scale whatever offering it is, whether it be like curbside, whether it be your e-commerce experience. I mean, that's the only way that you can kind of set a path or start to build a plan for how to move forward, right? Figuring out like, okay, like what do we have in place now that can be improved upon? And then how does that allow us to have better conversations around where our investments should be over the next few quarters or, or a year. So I definitely think, you know, taking that time to reflect in a way rather than just like chasing the next thing is really important. So thank you for raising that point. So let's get into the book because I feel like what we've been talking about thus far is really connected to the contents and the basically what I've read thus far from your book, Retail Innovation Reframed, because by the time this episode will be out, the book will be officially released, which is very exciting. So I have to ask, I mean, what inspired you to write the book, knowing that you're doing all of this work, having all these conversations with retailers? What did you think was kind of missing in the market? And that you knew there was like a gap that needed to be filled, I guess, from, from a insight and best practices perspective. Well, firstly, thank you. It's been really humbling so far, like in a lovely way. It's not just my mum who loves the book. We've got some really nice feedback about it, which is great because we, the reason that that's important to us is not because we needed the stroke of the ego or that's not why we did it. We created the whole business, the whole idea of wanting to do good for the industry. And the book, like my career in retail, was an accidental kind of thing that we fell into. We'd done all of this research, we'd curated all of this knowledge into a helpful way that we think we can help retailers change and increase their rate of change. But 
we didn't want to just kind of keep that as IP. It's like, well, we should share this, obviously. And we created the book in the same way we created the business, which is to be helpful. Like it's not just this self-indulgent project full of our opinions and stories or favorite quotes. Well, to be fair, it has a few of those, but it's mostly exercises. It's stuff you can do that same day that reduces friction immediately and helps you become a better innovator. So it's exciting to have done it. And we think that if with a few practical steps, basically it's an inch by inch game, like everything in retail, it's an inch by inch game. If you continuously make change in the way that you think about and reframe innovation instead of being things that you deliver as being the process by which you deliver things, you'll be better and you'll thrive. And you see those in 2020 who were able to adapt super fast were those who had this kind of process inbuilt. They were able to kind of stand up teams and reprioritize, shift funding around, do all of that stuff at pace that enabled them to kind of deploy things very, very quickly. And we wanted to make sure that the book could do that. So you don't have to come and hire us. You could buy the book and it'll still get you several of the inches towards being a better innovator. So it's exciting that it's out there and the feedback's been fabulous, as I said so far, which is gives you such a warm feeling inside. It's a very, it's a very nice thing. And hopefully it will help a whole bunch of people. Whether you're the boss that can change the world or you're the frustrated innovation evangelist, hopefully there's something in there that'll be helpful for all of you. Yeah, that's great. And I have to say, Andrew, I love that you guys kind of laid as much as you could out in the open for your audience, because I feel like sometimes people use books as like the marketing hook. And it's like, oh, well, if you want to learn more, you have to work with us. So you're literally providing the playbook that anyone can use and apply and actually see tangible value from, which I really commend you for. And I'm sure a lot of folks appreciate. And now a word from our sponsor. Retailers know that it doesn't matter how great your website is if people can't find it. Podium helps you get found and chosen by making it easy to get reviews from your happiest customers just by sending a simple review request through text. In fact, with Podium, every step of your customer journey is powered by text messaging so you can talk to your customers on the channels they prefer. Start the conversation on your website with Podium Web Chat. Set appointments, answer questions, and close deals, all in the same thread. When it's time to pay, just send a request over text so your customers can pay in seconds. And now that you've got a happy customer, send them a review invite over text as well so you can rise up your local rankings and start the cycle all over again. With all of this, plus powerful integrations and features in one consolidated inbox, Podium is your tool for customer communication. Send a text, get more done. Learn more at Podium.com. Was your process for creating this book, was it largely just based on your IP, you know, the work that you've done thus far and kind of distilling it down into actionable steps and exercises? Or what kind of went into this creative process to ensure that it aligned with how you typically do things as a firm, but kind of also represented what's happening on the ground, so to speak. So like what's happening in retail organizations, because it's kind of a a balance, I could assume, like you don't want to just like speak down to people or speak over them. You want to make sure there's alignment there. So what kind of went into that process? That's a really smart question and very thoughtful. So thank you. It was kind of a layered approach. Like we 
we'd collated all of this knowledge. We'd spoken to dozens and dozens of retailers or retail partners. We'd seen and investigated and couldn't possibly tell you how many innovation books I now own to kind of just consume all of this knowledge about how different countries, different industries, different people, different experts, both 100 years ago and 100 days ago have written books about what innovation means, how to do it, how to embed it. We'd just collated all of this knowledge and it was stupid to just kind of hold it. That's when we said, well, obviously we should write this into a book. But we also knew that if you're a retailer, you're a measured and driven person working a seven day a week job that you need to have it digestible and actionable. You know, that's how we work in retail. And we kind of then had to go through this process of choosing how best to take all of that knowledge and make it actionable and useful immediately. So I can go through a chapter and then put the book down for three months, but at least I've gained the advantage of what is in that chapter. I can then pick it up and progress further. So we wanted to just take the life of a retailer and create something that is most helpful for them within it. And as I said before, it's a game of inches in retail. And you know, every time you can move a little bit further, then you're going to do well, or you're at least going to make progress that will help you do well. So we wanted the book to kind of be a, a map. I think we we refer to it a little bit like a map on this quest for innovation. And it's hopefully we'll just take you through each of the steps along the way. Yeah, I do love that. And I love that some time, some attention is brought to debunking some of the industry myths that are kind of permeating, you know, mainstream media, even conferences, conversations. And you kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, the notion of retail being dead, but there are a lot of others too. So, I mean, what do you believe are kind of the most prevalent industry myths right now? And how is that being used? I don't want to say to manipulate conversations or like steer people, but I mean, that's really what's happening at the end of the day, right? Like when you're hearing retail is dead, it's like a sense of panic and what do we do? And then in speed to roll things out or implement technologies. I mean, it feels like, you know, kind of on the hamster wheel. But I mean, I would love your take on what's kind of driving the most uncertainty or panic and kind of breaking them down as myths at the end of the day. It's so incredibly frustrating to listen to the way <laughs> I could that imagine. <laughs> this industry is articulated. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm very good for a rant. And I warn you, that question's definitely opened up a good chance of a rant from me here. <laughs> okay. In a good way. In a good way. I promise yeah. I'll make it helpful. No, but lay it all out. I'm ready. <laughs> there are just so many and most of them suck. So it's like retail is dying. No, it's growing. Online's killing retail. No, it's growing it. The retail apocalypse is real. There's photos splashed across newspapers and cable news of stores shuttered. And it's just so far from the truth. Now, is it the truth for some individual brands or some individuals in the industry? Yeah, absolutely it is. And that's important. And we should learn from it and help if we can, but like, you know, mainly learn from it as an industry. But it's so not what is actually happening. There is an existential crisis, which is how do I take my brand into a world where the mediums by which my customers are engaging with me is different? I often use the analogy of like in the 60s when malls kind of became this huge thing, there wasn't this huge industry dialogue flashed across the news. It's like malls, are you a mall retailer or a street retailer? you're not one or the other, you're probably both. You've probably been in streets and you're moving to malls. Now, of course, there was some cannibalization and bigger brands kind of taking the advantage of malls, et cetera, but they're just retailers. They're all retailers, no matter what. If a big brand of retail takes over a small brand, then the big fish ate the small fish. Now, the medium's just shifted, but it's exactly the same challenge. Are the big fish going to eat the small fish or are the small fish going to fight back? Um, so the medium shifted, 
online versus physical, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's not the apocalypse that people are talking about. Retail grew in 2020, a year where the whole world was basically on its knees. The industry grew as a whole. Now, of course, that story is not reflective for every brand, and that's important to acknowledge. And there are so many people doing it tough in retail, but it's not the whole story. So I think everyone in the industry needs to play a part in trying to shifting that negative narrative because there are such beautiful, amazing, wonderful stories of retailers across the online spectrum, across the old traditional incumbent retail spectrum, and then new brands popping up that are just telling fabulous, wonderful stories about what retail can evolve to be next. It's not dying. It's just evolving to the next thing. So that's one, and that's an end rant, I promise. (laughs) But But the second one, I think is, and this is one that's more actionable probably to people listening, is the flashy things in the world, like technology or new store design or whatever, is an innovation. It's a potential outcome of innovation. It's really easy to walk the expo floor of a, you know, a a retail conference like the NRF Big Show or online retailer in Australia or wherever that kind of go, oh, I'll have one of those and one of those and one of those and one of those. And yeah, I'm innovative because I've bought these four new things. No, because potentially there's going to be a whole bunch of problems in implementing them and transitioning to them and adding you know, value to your customer or to your brand. We need to reframe our thinking of what innovation is to instead, if we're asked what innovations we've done in the year, the answer should be, oh, well, we shifted our capital allocation process and our business casing to allow more ideas to be seed funded. So we truly find the best thing to do for our customers instead of we deployed this really cool AR functionality with machine learning and other cliched one-liners in here. Innovation's got to be about how we've shifted our business to permanently change, to create a legacy of change. We just need to shift our mindset a little bit there. So I'll call that a relatively gentle nudge. Just reframe your thinking of what innovation is to be about how you increase your rate and breadth of change rather than any individual thing you might do with that new functionality. Yeah, I think that's a really great distinction, Andrew, because I agree. I feel like when people talk about innovation, it's largely through the lens of, what cool tech can we roll out and how will it help us stand apart, not just from a customer perspective, but also from a media perspective, right? Like, I think there is a bit of a draw there for people to say, oh, we want to be the first two or we want to be the ones to reimagine X, you know? And sometimes it's cool. It's great. Awesome. You know, gives us news stories to cover. But then a few weeks go by, a few months, you know, it either whittles away or you find out that they reversed it or they went back to the status quo or the same old way of doing things. So in your mind and in your work, innovation requires that fundamental shift in how teams work and look at their business and kind of build their experiences at a at a more foundational level. I mean, because really, I think to close up our conversation, I'd love for us to kind of walk through some of the fundamental elements that really go into being successful at innovation or being more innovative as a team or as an organization. So, I mean, really, I would love to get your take on what the fundamental facets of innovation are, like from a business perspective. So I think I'll draw back to one comment quickly before answering that question, which is if being the most innovative or the first to market with something is your thing, is your purpose and kind of why you exist and why customers buy from you, then run at it, own it and run at it. 
but it's not right for everybody. And the example that I use all the time is Samsung versus Apple when it comes to the you know mobile phone market, the cell phone market. Samsung, they've built a business around running, having the first X megapixel camera, the first this, that, and the other, but they're not always a beautiful experience, but they're, they're usually first. Apple refined to make an experience wonderful, delightful, simple, easy, comfortable, engaging, enthralling, and that's what is their purpose. Two very successful companies kind of in the same market but doing a really different job of their purpose. You just need to find yours. So number one for any innovation process is your purpose needs to be a clear and actionable one with a defined intent, something that anybody in any part of the organisation can respond to. I often get challenged when I say purpose. People think I mean, you know, sustainable or green or giving back to charity or something. You know, being purposeful means you've got something that the whole organization can do. Every decision is influenced by it. For example, Disney's is all about using storytelling to inspire people and be the world's premier entertainment company. They are one of the biggest for-profits and successful for-profits company that exists. Their purpose doesn't talk about the environment or any kind of trend but it's a very actionable purpose at every level of the organization. So that's step number one. But then step number two is like, and the reframe process kind of lays it out, but there are so many nuances that you need to look at within your process, whether getting funding is probably one of the biggest kind of problems in an innovation process. How is funding allocated? Is it in big chunks for big projects, you know, two, three years out? Or is it we have a chunk of money set aside that's for innovation where we seed ideas and see which ones are the best to pursue? And then we know that we've tested and we know they'll work and they'll know they'll deliver outcomes so that we can actually follow them through because companies just waste tremendous amounts of money and time on projects that won't work because they didn't test them up front. They just allocated you know, $20 million for a restack of some IT thing that they thought was the right thing to do because everyone else in the industry had done it. So just think differently about funding. And then the second one that I'd say is sponsorship. Sponsorship is so flawed, particularly in retail, because it's hierarchical. We treat the sponsor as kind of this messiah that knows all, that makes decisions about the direction of every project. The sponsor is just another member of the team. Their job just happens to be leadership. And leadership means getting funding, getting space, whether that be you know resources or testing capabilities or customers to trial it with or removing roadblocks from an organisation, et cetera. They've got a specific role in a team. They're not this kind of be-all aura of what's right and what's wrong to do. The team can do that and the team can test that with people like customers or frontline people who are actually going to use the thing. Because too often sponsorships treated as like, you know, I'm an expert, I've been in retail for 30 years, I was the best salesperson, et cetera, so I know exactly what to put into the system. The system goes out there and then it doesn't work. Or the frontline roll their eyes and they have to come up with all the workarounds to have to deal with the system. So there's a whole bunch of things there. So reframe what sponsorship is. I could go on for hours, but I should probably leave it at that. (laughs) To add to your point around sponsorship, do you think that there's a bigger conversation around how ideas are developed, iterated upon, and even communicated across the organization. And I guess there's kind of a lens of the current context of how a lot of people are working now, like working from home or some sort of like hybrid environment that collaboration is very different than it was even a year ago. So, I mean, is there anything that needs to be considered around like more open idea sharing across teams or even within teams and how those ideas are laddered up or throughout the organization so they could become a new strategy or or new offering for the business? I mean, is there a bigger conversation around 
collaboration and how that supports innovation in a business? Definitely. And it starts with leadership. So leadership alignment, all too often, there was kind of this trend for a little while around kind of creating an office that kind of deals with innovation. And that comes from the way we've built organizations. Like humans, we're an evolved species. We've kind of, our brain is basically designed to make things as efficient as possible or what is seemingly efficient as possible, which is, you know, I get 10 tasks in, I need to delegate those 10 tasks out because I can't do them all. So who do I give them to? And, you know, we've kind of tried to make, I have tasks, I give you tasks, you do task. You know, CIOs, chief marketing officers, operations officers, et cetera, et cetera. And we've kind of then, every time something new's come up, we've given that to somebody, we've created like a chief digital officer, or we've created a chief innovation officer, or a chief customer officer. And it is good to kind of create momentum and create some initial thinking, but it's nowhere near, by far, not the most efficient way to deliver huge innovative outcomes. So innovation must come from across the organization. And the only way to do that is if the leadership team is aligned. What role does each person have to play in innovation? How do we define that so it's actionable? How do my measurements and my KPIs have to change so that I, as the salesperson for stores, don't try and fight against innovation from the digital team who have only digital capabilities? How do, you know, from a marketing point of view, how do I invest my dollars in different markets, even though I've got teams of people who are designed to do it the way we've always done it. There's all of these kind of structural challenges that can only be fixed if your leadership team are aligned behind what their intent behind innovation is and what the outcomes are and what's everybody's role to play in it. I talk often about when I was heading up operations for a retailer, a technology retailer in Australia, the head of sales and I were just a fabulous team because whenever it came to anything to do with his business, I entirely trusted him, but I kept him informed on every single thing we were doing and why and leaned on him and his team, obviously, to be able to feed into us as what we were going to create for him to be more successful. And he then said, I will give you everything you need to test, to trial, to inform your thinking, to help you decide on the best ideas, etc. So there was this kind of, you know, symbiotic partnership between it because our boss created that alignment gave us very clear roles in the innovation process that we lived by. So that leadership alignment, I can't underline that enough as one of the most important things you can do to ensure then that your whole organization can kind of get behind whatever it is that you want to do, what your, you know, the intent of your innovation process. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's as good a time as ever, I think, for companies to kind of revisit, assess, reset even the ways they work, the ways they bring ideas to market, to your point, assess the investments they've already made, what improvements that they could make, because who knows, honestly, at this point, what what 2021 is going to bring. But I do have to ask you, because you live and breathe retail, you're passionate about it. I'm sure you love to dig into trend content as much as I do. So if you were to kind of look into your crystal ball and try and break down what would be or will be a top priority from an innovation standpoint. I mean, are there any trends that really rise to the top for you? Do you think there are any that have more opportunity or will really see a surge in in the coming year? This is one of those questions that I have a love-hate relationship with. I know, it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot of pressure. (laughs) It is. No, it's not the pressure so much. I don't mind. I'm good for a rant. But 
I think it's more about like, what's the most helpful? Like, I love the question because thinking about it is incredibly and it's enticing and leaders have always wanted to think strategically. It's kind of one of the things that gets us into leadership, right? But we have to reframe that too, because thinking strategically, no one in 2019 said, all right, we've got to be ready because I have a sneaking suspicion a global pandemic's going to hit. It's more about how do you prepare your organization to be ready for anything like that? So we have to kind of take out, disenthrall ourselves from the excitement of predictions and put ourselves in how we can be prepared for anything. But I will say 2020 was this, obviously this intense acceleration, which is creating a feeling of a gap in the industry, which is really scary. There was a Euromonitor statistic that I saw the other day that found that they did a study of of retail leaders. They found that only 15% of retail executives feel they're keeping pace with their peers, which means there's a bunch of people out there who are doing better than they actually think they are. So I'm going to start my answer to the question with a helpful piece of advice, which is when you're in the work, it feels messier than when you're watching the work. So it's felt it's been messy for everyone. So be kinder to yourself and your teams for the rough edges that exist, because you've probably got just some incredible progress to celebrate from 2020. And yes, you'll probably have to kind of sand off some rough edges, but that's okay. I've spoken to people in organizations that are touted for having an incredible response to 2020, who are freaking out, running wild, feeling like they're just in this mess. So you're not alone. It's everywhere. So just be a little kinder to yourself. So there's a little bit of probably unwarranted advice. But I do think there are going to be lots of things in quotation marks that are going to become trends. Obviously, improved digital capability is going to be one of them, an expansion of buy online and pick up locally. I don't use curbside or store for that because I don't. I think that restricts our thinking of what the possibilities of what local pickup can be, looking at things like Nordstrom Local that can drop off and smaller format stores that can drop off anything from a Macy's delivery through to the Nordstrom ones. There's lots of different things that local pickup can be, and I think we should broaden our language there. But I do think that there'll be something that will start small, but I think is going to get attention quickly, which is what I mentioned earlier, this acceleration of the strategic use, the management, the focus of what the role of the physical store is. And with that, obviously, the performance measurement. I think the way we've done it, ignoring the role in digital sales and brand acquisition stuff is is stupid and it, and it needs to go. And I think that that's kind of slowly getting a little bit of attention and I think that will accelerate in 2021. But in the bigger picture, though, I'd say the mess and acceleration we saw in 2020 has probably created a whole bunch of friction in an organization. So obviously, A, refine the things that we did create in 2020, but B, if everyone's feeling left behind, you're going to kind of face this fork in a road that you need to think about which direction you go. Do I try and get more stuff done and kind of keep going at that accelerated pace and kind of refocus our energy into pushing more through the current mechanics we have? Or do I kind of refine the things I'm doing and spend time up front fixing the mechanics so I can do all of this stuff, this accelerated rate of change better, less money, less freak out, less mess? I obviously want everyone to take the the second option because it's kind of what I think works. So it's the one that I recommend. But yeah, I think that fork in the road is going to be really interesting to see which path different people take. Love it, Andrew. Well, this has been so insightful. I always love hearing the perspectives of people who have such broad experiences, right? Like I said, you've had that firsthand retail experience. Now you're working with so many other retailers. You did all this great research for your book, which is so exciting. And I feel like we hit on a lot of best practices, recommendations, points of inspiration. I love that you brought up be kind to yourself because, I mean, honestly, some days for me, I'm not running a business. Like some days for me, just getting by is 
just enough. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought that up. But before I let you go, are there any closing points of wisdom, inspiration, recommendations, just to kind of close things up? Or do you think we hit it all today? I mean, I'm always curious and always challenging ourselves to be better. So I'm sure we didn't hit it all. But I think we did a pretty, I think I've just adored the conversation with you. So thank you for taking the time to invite this uh, little Aussie guy across (laughs) to have a chat about retail. But I think like, I will say one thing on the be kind to yourself thing. That was one of the best pieces of advice I got from one of just a great leader that I had the luck and privilege to work when at four, if I'm using old school language of hierarchy, but with, in my word, who constantly said, you know, curiosity and perfectionism and chasing being better is really hard work. And that is no often more common, I think, than in retail, where people are running fast. So you have to take time to just look after yourself and be kinder to yourself because what retail has been able to achieve in the last year is phenomenal and we should be incredibly proud of it. And it's been really tough but it's, you know, important. So I guess if I was closing out with one thing, it'd be like one of my, well, my singular favorite activity to do, which I do every single day, is I go have a cup of coffee. You can drink whatever you like, tea, coffee, martinis, whatever suits. Um, <laughs> and don't do anything with it. Just be, just enjoy the coffee. Have a, I call it having a coffee with myself. I don't have a device next to me. I have, you know, my smartwatch on mute, you know, I just, and I just be, whether it be in a cafe watching people go by or whether it be sitting on my back porch, doesn't matter. That coffee, that time for you ch- just to let your brain, which is a machine, you know, we keep forgetting that, but our brain is a machine to just process stuff and catch up. Um, it's tremendously powerful and it helps you reflect and think bigger than perhaps you wouldn't have or would have, I should say, if you didn't take that time. So there you go. That's my last piece of potential wisdom slash annoying final rant. (laughs) No, no, I love it, Andrew. And I think now more than ever, we have that, since we have that opportunity to kind of take the moment to ourselves, reflect, even just disconnect mentally for a bit because there is so much going on, you know, now's the time to really take that. So great way to close out. And I too really enjoyed this conversation. This is the first time we've had the chance to meet. And honestly, I hope we get to do it again. This was really fun. So thank you again so much for taking the time out. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. I appreciate it. And yeah, definitely. We'll make it happen. I think every time we can have a conversation with people, we get smarter and I've definitely got smarter from this conversation listening to you. So thanks for having me. Agree. Me too. Thank you again. And of course, thanks to all of you who are listening to this conversation. If you have any follow-up questions or comments for Andrew or myself around this episode, we would love to hear from you. Like Andrew said, having these conversations, um, it's so important. It really helps unlock new ideas, new opportunities, and I think new insights, you know, from all parts of our brain. I mean, there's so much exciting stuff happening right now. So we'd love to hear from you. Please drop us a line on LinkedIn or on Twitter at our touch points. And of course, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do on your preferred podcast player. That way you get alerts and new episodes directly to your device. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.